at SFM Radio and at Stephen Grutus on Twitter. Over the last few days, there's been more evidence that the government of Saudi Arabia has been involved in what's called sports washing. Sports washing is the practice of a country buying sports teams and buying sporting assets to try and improve its reputation. The argument goes like this. Saudi Arabia has a huge reputation problem. It does not allow proper human rights. It oppresses people. It does not give women equal rights to men. And its leader ordered the murder and the hacking to death of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. To get its way out of this problem, it's sponsoring huge sporting events. Just this week, the Live Golf Tour, which is sponsored by the Saudi Arabian Wealth Fund, is merging with the most prestigious golf tour in the world, the PGA. The Saudi Arabian government has also decided to privatise four of its football clubs. That same wealth fund will now control those football clubs, including the club that Cristiano Ronaldo plays for. So then, what are the implications of this? What does it mean for sport? First this morning, what is happening in golf? Craig Ray is the sports editor at Daily Maverick. Then the business of it all. David Wingfield is the head of business development at Brand Finance Africa. What this is going to do to the business of sport going forward, Kelvin Nielsen is the managing director for excuse me, Kelvin Watt is the managing director for Nielsen Sports in Africa, Asia and Pacific and the Middle East. And then to sport itself, the quality of it, the sports journalist and presenter in Kulaleku in Kewal. We start then with the editor of uh, the sports editor of Daily Maverick, Craig Gray. Craig, good morning. Thanks for your time. Several years ago, there was the PGA Golf Tour. Then the Live Golf Tour started. How was it different from other tours? Well, the Live Golf Tour was basically funded by Saudi Arabian money, and it was a breakaway tour with um, a 54-hole tournament, no cut, guaranteed fees, massive prize money, and, of course, it paid players to to join the tour. Uh, Unlike the PGA Tour or the DP World Tour, which is the former European tour, where you have to earn your way onto the tour through your performances, you get a tour card and you come up through the ranks, and once you've earned a tour card, you can play and you get invited to the the big events. And if you're on the fringes of it, you sometimes have to play Monday qualifying to get in. No such thing in the Golf Tour. They, They bought players, they... Someone like Phil Mickelson was repeatedly paid $125 million to join Dustin Johnson, something similar. And it was a 48-man field, no cut, and everyone made a lot of money. The winners got $4 million per tournament, and the guy who finished last was still guaranteed you know, a couple of hundred thousand. Um, so basically, it took away all sorts of jeopardy, and it was a, essentially a glorified exhibition event. I have to say, to listen to you describe it like that reminds me of the Rebel Tours during apartheid. Players from famously the West Indies, Sri Lanka, England, paid to come here, paid whether they won or not. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, look, sports players and, and athletes are paid salaries or wages, and you know whether they win or lose. If you take football, for example, or rugby, whatever. But um, those Rebel Tours were, as you as you rightly described, they were paid money to come to South Africa, and regardless of what happened, they were going to get a fat check at the end of the day. Uh, um, it reminds me a bit of the $70 million challenge in the early days as well, Stephen. Mm. Um, so this, uh, the, the formation of the Live Golf Tour led to a huge sort of discord in golf. You had people who had known each other for a long time, taking different views, some continuing to play in the PGA, some taking the money in the Live Golf Tour. Then this merger seemed to have come out of nowhere. Yeah, it was certainly well kept under wraps. Uh, you know, as as the days have gone by since the the news of the merger, um, yeah, it was only about five people who knew. Um, you know, including PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monaghan. So it does look hypocritical because the PGA Tour was very critical of Live Golf, 
and Saudi money and it, you know, used the morality arguments about the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. Then it switched to a legacy argument saying, well, the only tour with real legacy is the PGA tour and obviously the European tour by extension. Um, and, uh, you know, legacy and history, what Tiger Woods was chasing, you know, 18 majors, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and now it's just jumped into bed with, with the money and ultimately money has won the day yeah, because, um, you know, as much money as the PGA Tour has, and it has a lot of money, or certainly did have a lot of money, Live, Live Golf and the public investment fund in uh, Saudi Arabia has you know, literally a bottomless pit of money. I think funds worth something like 600 billion pounds currently. And, um, you know, and you think Saudi Arabia uh, makes $161 billion a year in profit just on crude oil sales. You know, that, that, that bottomless pit of money will remain bottomless. So I think the PGA Tour came to the conclusion that we can't compete with these guys in terms of money and the history and legacy arguments not working as more and more players defected. Um, so we better find a way to do business with them. Um, in the West Indies, uh, the fact that some of their cricketers came into it here uh, actually led to huge divisions. Uh, it, was a, it was an issue which is still talked about today. I mean, 30, 40, 50 years later. Um, in golf, are we going to see the same thing? Some people have taken really strong positions against the Live Golf Tour. I think Rory McIlroy may be one of them. Now suddenly they're going to be playing with people in a merge tour. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. I mean, it's ruined friendships. I mean, McIlroy and Sergio Garcia, for instance, have fallen out badly um, over, over this. And a lot of the Ryder Cup players in the European and the US teams, there's a Ryder Cup later this year, which is uh, one of the great sort of team events in golf. And and the as it stands now, the players who took money are not eligible for that tour, that tournament. Um, are they going to be allowed back in by September when the tournament takes place? It doesn't look that way in the initial um, agreement or terms of agreement with this this deal. It looks like it's only going to start um, you know, shaping it or taking form in 2024. But the reality is it has ruined uh, has ruined uh, friendships. But I think golf. We must never forget, Stephen, that golf and professional golfers they play for money. It's really, it's a sport. We can talk about prestige and history, and I love it as much as anyone when it comes to the majors. But the reality is, golfers play to take money, to earn money. And golf tours have never been shy about saying, you know, the first prize is $1 million for this or $2 million for that, and the total prize fund for this tournament is $7 million. I mean, the PGA Tour itself has a, has a money list, and at the end of the year, the top 30 players in the money list play in a postseason playoffs where they make more money so um i think when it comes down to it most golfers are going to say it's really been about money and now that the two sides are merging it's just going to mean more money um i think what might rankle some players is the ones who didn't take the live initial payoff someone like john rahm was offered hundreds of millions of dollars to join live he didn't take it he might be thinking oh well i should have taken it because if this if i knew this was going to be the outcome I might have taken the money. But yeah, some people like McElroy might still have a good conscience. So, well, I didn't take the the blood money, let's say, in inverted commas. And now I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm now stuck with this because it's my job to be a golfer. And this is the only place I can play. And these are the circumstances I'm going to have to play under. Craig Ray, thank you. Sports editor at Daily Maverick. You were there, SFM. Immediate conversation around the, pro- the policy of sports washing. The practice of sports washing continues. It's 18 minutes to nine. David Wingfield is the head of business development at Brand Finance Africa, an expert on the finance of sport. David, good morning. Morning, Stephen. Sport is a big business. How much money are we talking about here? I mean, how much money are the Saudis spending on golf and football? 
Look, I mean, obviously they're spending a lot of money. I mean, I, I mean, Craig speaking and Calvin will, will, will probably follow me with some insight on that. Really, from a brand finance point of view, what we do is we look at the value of of the sports and of the clubs. Um, and in particular, um, uh, um, football at the moment, we've been looking at that. And I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, of Saudi and, and other Middle Eastern money in football. Um, and, and it shows because when you look at, at the, the, the clubs over the past few years that really have um, moved to the top of the rankings, obviously, there's the size of their fan base, um, you know, the size of their stadiums, etc. But in terms of their revenue and how that affects their enterprise and then actually what the brands are worth is, is just getting exponentially bigger. I mean, to give you an ex, uh, um, you know, a, a club like Manchester City is now worth over 4 billion uh, euro um, and their brand alone, just the, the kind of intangible asset is 1.5 billion rand. How so, much? Uh, sorry, billion euros. Mm. How much of it is about the, the sort of names of the clubs and then the names of the players? I mean, I don't follow football professionally. I mean, I used to follow Kaiser Chiefs trophy cabinet professionally, but that got a bit boring. But everybody knows who Cristiano Ronaldo is. So it's about the fact that he plays for a Saudi club. I mean, that's an expensive yeah. game. Even I know that's an I, expensive game. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you if you look at any, um, I mean, you, you kind of, by association, what are, what are people trying to do? I mean, if you value an, a club, the fact remains that that the size of your fan base, your social media following, the fact are you performing on the pitch? How big is your stadium? Do you how big is your squad? What's the squad value and what big names? These will impact on how your your business and or your brand and therefore your business will grow. And obviously, when 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 you um, when you're an owner, whether it's the Saudis or anything else. Um, by, by association, you would hope that that, that rubs off in, in a positive um, manner on your own nation brand, um, in, in this case being, being Saudi Arabia. So the fact that you, you have in their own league people like Ronaldo playing, there was a lot of rumor about Messi going there, but he's now going to, to um, the MLS, um, is all about, um, it's kind of by association, those very, very strong and valuable brands um, being able to 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 grow your own, in Saudi's case, their own nation brand. Um, I'm presuming that only the Saudis have the money to do something like this, both in golf and in football. I mean, it would be hard to see who else can compete with them, although I see we're being competed with now by your dog. But I imagine only the Saudis have this kind of money. Well, I mean, if you if you look at football, I mean, at the moment, there's, there's quite a lot, even clubs like Manchester United, there's a, there's a little bit of a, um, you know, a decision on who, who's going to take over. There's a lot of um, um, Middle Eastern money. There's an offer on the table, I believe, for Manchester United that expires, I think it's tomorrow, versus Sir Jim Radcliffe, for example, the, the owner of Enios, um, who obviously is also massive in sport. So there is a lot of nation money going into sport, absolutely no doubt about that. But by the same token, there's it's, it's big, big business. Um, the deal that was done with Chelsea, um, um, you know, so so there, there are a lot, there's a lot of money washing around because this is big business. It's global following. It's broadcast everywhere, um, and 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 people make money. As I said, you know, you've got the, the world's the world's biggest football brand is 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 Manchester City. It's worth over four billion um, euros, um, and their brand alone, which is I mean, it's ether. It's an intangible idea. Um, is is over one point five um, uh, billion euros. So so. It's big money. 
Um, and, you know, some of these clubs, based on performance kind of thing, they're, they're, the value for their owners increases. Um, a club like Inter Milan increased over 30% in the past year. Um, it's good business. David Wingfield, thank you. Head of Business Development at Brand Finance Africa. You are there, CFM. We continue your mediated conversation around the business of sports washing, 13 minutes to nine. Kelvin Watt is the Managing Director for Africa, Asia, Pacific and Middle East at Nielsen Sports. Uh, Kelvin, good morning. Um, are people then obviously getting a lot of value for the amount of money they're putting into these sporting assets? To listen to David, it sounds like they are getting value for money here. Well, look, the, the investment into sporting assets is an interesting one. And, and largely, you know, as a rule of thumb, you, you get your value when you sell. You know, you build up these businesses and it's that sell. You know, as a sort of from a, a, a you know, month in, year out perspective, you know, compared to other businesses and taking of dividends and those sort of things typically doesn't happen. You, you invest more in it, but the value of those investments grows, you know, and I think the um, that's really where it's sitting. I think this is just, you know, from a Saudi Arabia perspective, their 2030 strategy is about moving away from being an oil-dominated economy into a sort of services and entertainment and sport and various other things. And this is just a key part of, of that, you know, of that of that strategy. You know, they they they, they offered Liberty Media over $20 billion um, for Formula One. And you think, I think Liberty Media bought it for four or five billion. So again, that, you know, that's where Liberty Media would have been exiting with a profit. Um, and you know from from their investment in that environment and, and that's really where it sits um and that's where the opportunity is and i think you know with not getting f1 they probably can't do the same in football and, and golf was just the next best one on the on the table that they could you know pull together into one organization and that's really what they've done they've together with the pga and the and the dp world tour the old european tour they've effectively creating a monopoly um situation for for professional golf in the world and you know i think that's still got a lot of way to go. Um, we do need to remember here that some of the reasons that they're at the table and you're getting both sides are telling why they came together and a lot earlier than most people considered, but certainly from a, a PGA perspective, they really want to protect their 501c status, which effectively is a is their tax status within the US, that they're a, they're, you know, they don't pay tax, they're a, they're a not-for-profit organization. Um, on the other basis, the, the Department of Justice in the U.S. has been looking into them for, for monopolistic practices and various other things. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily going to go away. And, and, you know, you've got to remember that it was the Department of Justice in the U.S. that effectively bought FIFA to book um, as well. So, you know, I think there's still a lot of water to be run here. Um, and it's going to be an interesting one to, to see how it plays out. So people are going to spend a lot of money. The broadcasters, I presume, are all going to go along. Um, the people with money are the winners here. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the, the way of life? Well, no, I'll tell you. No, I think the, the big winners are, are the golfers. You know, I think one of the things that Liv did, and, you know, I sort of, I'm not sure that your analogy to the Rebel Tours of the 80s is, is probably fair on, on a lot of those golfers. I think those were very different issues at the time. You know, a lot of the thing that the way the PGA worked is you'd, you'd employ, you know, on, on any given weekend, 140 odd of the best golfers in the world. And then, Come Friday, half of them you wouldn't pay them for their services. You still got your TV rights, your sponsorship money, your various things. And I think a lot of it was golfers saying, "Hang on, you know, someone's always got to come in the back end of the field, so someone's always not getting paid." Um, now, none of us would go to work on any given day to say, "Well, look, you know, the best performer today will get paid, and the one who's not the best performer won't get." Um, we wouldn't do it, um, you know. And I think we were expecting. I think what what Liv did is said, "Listen, these are some of the best athletes in the world. We're gonna we're gonna." 
pay them for their services because whether they win or lose, they're part of what generates the sponsorship, the broadcast rights, the, all of those things. So, look, from a broadcast rights perspective, with everything being in, in one place, um, it, it, it's certainly going to be better for the broadcasters in that they're now dealing with one commercial entity with all of their broadcast rights. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with it because typically once you start aggregating that much content together, somewhere the price has to come down. You know, it can't just keep soaring because the money's just not there to support it. Kelvin Watt, thank you very much indeed. Managing Director for Africa, Asia, Pacific and Middle East at Nielsen Sports. In a moment, what does all of this do to the quality of the sport? And Kululeko Nkewu, the sports journalist and presenter, will be next on your Mediated Conversation. Nine minutes to nine. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Eight minutes to nine, continuing your Mediated Conversation around the process known as sports washing. And Kululeko Nkewu is a sports journalist and presenter. And Kululeko, how's it? Good morning. Morning, Stephen. Morning to your listeners as well. What is this going to do to sport? Are we going to get better football? Are we going to get better golf as a result of this kind of investment? Or is the fact that there are monopolies, that people are going to get paid whether they play well or not, whether they lose or not, is actually going to have an impact in the longer run? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, Stephen. I just want to say um, that what, Sa- what the Saudis are doing is no different to what the Chinese were trying to do, is no different... Um, China recruited a lot of players that were playing in Europe, in the UEFA Champions League, um, and they figured out later on, at some point, five years down the line, that it's not working for them. Um, it's no different from what, from what the MLS was doing initially, recruiting David Beckham uh, as a superstar from Real Madrid, recruiting a lot of players, and then maybe 10 years down the line, figuring out that, well, it has not really done... It, is, it has pushed the needle somewhat because we now... Uh, in South Africa talking about the MLS, but really in terms of what they were projecting versus the money that they were pumping in, um, it didn't really move the needle to the to the effect that they thought it would. In, in, in fact, at some point, because of the money that they were spending on these superstars, they started introducing a salary cap in the MLS in America. So all of these countries will try. So that's America, that's China, and today it's Saudi. There's nothing wrong. We shouldn't really demonize the Saudis for using their money to exert influence in the sporting space uh, because all of these countries are powerhouses globally and Saudi have money uh, in terms of their mineral resources anyways. Um, In terms of the quality of the sport, um, I suppose time will tell. Dustin Johnson is still Dustin Johnson in golf. Uh, You know, he's still a very good player. Um, Although now there's been a merger, those players are still those players. Cristiano Ronaldo still scored uh, hat-tricks every now and then for his club. Um, I don't think that that, that will stop. Um, it, will be, it will be very interesting to see how the, the Saudis do this in the footballing context because one of the limitations that football clubs or football leagues or associations all over the world impose on themselves is the, is, is, is the foreign quota. So they will say each club must have at least uh, or at most five foreigners and no more than five. So when you when you limit yourself to only three foreigners, it means that the growth at which your league will develop um, will be stunted. It will be slower. Uh, but then when you allow 11 players on the field uh, to be foreign exports, um, imports, people that are coming from the UEFA Champions League, CAF Champions League, um, all over the world, maybe the quality will um, significantly be better. But then, um, unfortunately, on the other side of this will be that the national team of the Saudi Arabia uh, football uh, national team uh, because they don't have players playing in their local leagues because they don't have a foreign quota 
will not have the requisite experience and it might affect them there. That's why China, uh, over the years, have now, the, you, ca you cannot have more than three foreign players on their roster. Uh, that's why it, it, it has become the lackluster league that it was in the first place. Because as they realized um, after 10 years, that it wasn't going anywhere, this thing of hiring superstars. Um, and then I think at, at some point it was five foreigners. Now it's three foreigners because they realize that the project has failed. So I think with the Saudis, uh, only time will tell whether or not the quality will increase and whether or not this is a project. But I, I do want to say this and emphasize this. The Americans did it with the MLS. Uh, the Chinese did it with the, the Chinese Super League. The Saudis are doing it. And to some extent, even the English are globalizing or selling their, their their football to the world. So all of these nations have ideas of colonization or um, being global superpowers. So they have a sport that they sell to the world and the, the whole world consumes it. Um, does it matter that in Saudi Arabia's case, for example, four football clubs are going to be owned by one organization? I mean, what would the Formula One equivalent be? Team orders. Does it matter? Yeah, that's a very good question. I don't, I'm not experienced enough to know. I, I don't know of a case where a country owns four clubs in a league because generally speaking, these clubs are owned uh, by individuals with money. Although in the case of the Saudi, I mean, even Newcastle is owned by the public investment fund effectively, which means that they are owned by Saudi Arabia. So I think there will be, there are instances where businessmen um, own a Leeds United, for example. I think it's Radrizani. He owns Leeds United and he also owns a club in his own home country um, in Italy. I don't know whether it's Genoa. So, and, and, and we've seen this in those cases where they trade players. Um, sometimes they will release a player um, for as a free agent so that, in Italy so that he can be signed for free by um, Leeds United in England. Uh, and I think Watford is also by, owned by a family which owns Watford in England, and then they own a Spanish club and an Italian. They, they are Italian owners, they own Italian clubs, Spanish clubs, and in, in England as well. So we might see something similar to that effect where one businessman owns different clubs in different countries, whereas a nation owns four different clubs. So we might see unfair trading because when you want a player from one club to another, you have to pay. Sometimes you, you'll be charged uh, four times the amount that you're supposed to be paying or double the price, uh, whereas the advantage perhaps with that arrangement will be that players could trade freely. But that's maybe anti-competition behavior. Uh, so it will be very interesting for us to see it unfolding at a level where these clubs are owned by countries. But we know how it looks like when they are owned by private individuals, private business people uh, owning different countries, uh, different clubs at different countries. And very quickly in Kulileko, I mean, for the players, uh, especially at the top of the game, football and golf, I mean, it's a bonus time, isn't it? You're just going to make tons of money. You're not going to say no to any of it. Absolutely. And it's a shame that uh, Rory McIlroy, uh, Tiger Woods, I think was offered 800 million uh, to join the Live Golf Tour. And they, they whether it was a, a moral ground that they stood on, um, it was uh, commendable and it was admirable at the time that they took that stand. And, and at the time, every single week, it was being reported that someone else had joined. Someone else had joined Leave. Uh, you know, and it was like, whoa, okay, that's 50 players now, uh, 70 players now. So it's a shame that they never got to, you know, jump on that gravy train. Um, I was listening to someone who was saying that 
perhaps they could argue because they're having meetings with their lawyers and these organizations, perhaps that they, they could argue that they need to be given legacy payments or some sort of a payment now that uh, the leagues have merged or the, the organizations have merged. Um, so, you know, they, they didn't make that money, the guys that chose not to join at the beginning, but the ones that are joining now in football, Ngolo Kante has joined Saudi for 86 million pounds per year so that's good money i don't know whether i don't know whether or not it's sustainable to to be spent across 100 players because buying five players from europe is not really going to move the needle buying 10 players is not going to do anything you need a league that's dominated by those players who are playing in the champions league thank you very much indeed uh, 80 million pounds a year good money he says and <laughs> thanks sports journalist and presenter my thanks also to kelvin watt the managing director for africa asia pacific and middle east at nielsen sports david wingfield's head of business development at brand finance africa and craig ray is the sports editor at daily maverick really appreciate the time to all of you this morning we will be back uh, tomorrow from Paul sanza mdul banyana myself look after yourself you with sfm leading the conversation do you know what it's nine o'clock